Hey friends, I'm Christine Chapel, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, we chat with author and IBCD executive director, Jim Neuheiser, about his book, Parenting is More Than a Formula. For more help on the topics we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Dr. Jim Neuheiser is the director of the Christian Counseling Program and associate professor of Christian Counseling and Pastoral Theology at RTS Charlotte. For 25 years, Dr. Neuheiser served as the preaching pastor at Grace Bible Church in Escondido, California. He is an adjunct professor of biblical counseling at the Master's College and serves as board member at both the Biblical Counseling Coalition and the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Jim has been married to his wife, Caroline, for many years, and they have three adult children. Hey there, Jim. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really glad to be with you, Christine. Well, before we get started on our conversation, would you spend a few minutes sharing about why you wanted to write this book? Yes. Well, part of the motivation for writing them is kind of out of our own experience with our children who are now in their 30s. And you look back and wonder, well, boy, should I have done this differently? Or did I miss something here? But then beyond that, in counseling, we deal with lots of families, again, some our age, some much younger, but the younger ones are worried that they're going to get something wrong and they want to do everything just exactly the right way. And then the people our age, like I say, you look back and you have regrets, and especially if your children aren't on track where you hoped they would be. And so I thought it was really important in a very short format to lay out what the Bible says in the very basic form of what our responsibility is as parents and to overcome some of the wrong ideas about parenting, which have been really common in evangelical culture. And I think as we keep going in our discussion, we'll deal with some of the specifics. But I think many parents have a great deal of unnecessary guilt because you know they, they've ruined their kids because they were too permissive or they were not strict enough for you know, whatever problems they think they had. Uh, they see other people who seem to have perfect kids and they feel horrible. I'm, I'm a loser. I failed. And so it's really a big purpose of this book is to help parents understand the very basic, simple things the Bible teaches about parenting and to help them to realize that a lot of the formulas that are given in books and in seminars that go beyond the Bible at best are a way of doing things, not the way of doing things. And in some way, it's not even a very good way of doing things. And it's based upon unbiblical presuppositions. Can you give us some examples of the common approaches parents might consider when deciding what's best for their child's Christian upbringing? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think all of us as parents yearn to do what's best for our kids. And we make lots of decisions. And uh, a big decision people make is schooling. Mm -hmm. What am I going to do for my kids? And I have a friend who grew up in the early 60s or late 50s, and he had prayer and Bible reading in schools. And there was a time when people, Christian people, trusted the public schools to kind of be a partner in training their children in the right way from a Christian worldview. And of course, we know that is no more. And then others today will do Christian schools. And 
they'll pull out of hope. Well, I'm putting my child in, it's very expensive. The parents make tremendous sacrifices of money and time too. Uh, but you know, well, you know, it's worth it to get them out of the secular schools, and so we're giving them Christian education. And sometimes they'll say, "Well, if I spend this huge amount of money giving my child this special Christian education, then that'll kind of ensure my children get it right." And then Carol and I raised our kids just as the homeschool movement became very popular, and so that's where people said, "No, it's not Christian education. We need to teach them at home and let the parents take full responsibility for everything about training their children." and uh, interestingly enough, and I give seminars on this topic in front of fairly good groups, and I'll have people who are there who are believers raise their hands. How many went to public schools? How many went to Christian schools? How many, uh, you know, did homeschool, whatever? And, and you'll get a smattering of each. Mm -hmm. uh, there are examples both of success and failure with each, but that would be one example of kind of categories where I know of churches where they would say, our church is a homeschooling church. Or other churches will say, well, no, our church, we all support the Christian school. And you know, this is this is the culture of our group. That's in the category of education. And you could go further down in terms of church, where you know, some people look a lot to vacation Bible school and Awana or kids programs and kids Sunday school classes. And they you know, they look at the church as having you know a fundamental responsibility. And and now there's been a new generation that's come along in the family integrated church movement that thinks Sunday schools are terrible and youth groups are terrible and nurseries are terrible. And the key to your kids turning out well is you never let them out of your sight and you, you know, don't entrust anything to the church. And so I, I guess a third broad category, and I know we'll flesh out some of these as we keep going, is even in parenting methodology where uh, I remember the Dare to Discipline came out when I was a young Christian in the early 70s. And you had a psychologist who was a Christian who said you ought to spank your kids, which sounded kind of like the Bible. And a lot of people got excited about that. And then you had uh, in the late 60s, I mean, late 70s into the 80s, you had Bill Gothard. And you know, he was teaching, here's how you raise your kids. And originally his group was called Institute and Basic Youth Conflicts. And uh, you've had you know other people who have written books and held seminars. And it's kind of like, this is the way to do it. And this will bring success. And yeah, and then parents, I think, are a ready market for that because we are not quite sure what we're doing. We desperately want to get it right. And so we'll go to the seminar and buy the book and try the method. Well, building off of that comment, Jim, why do you think above and beyond what you just mentioned that parents do gravitate or tend to gravitate at least to formulaic approaches that seem to promise success if they just follow certain guidelines? Well, our hearts are bound up in our kids so much. Uh, Psalm 127, Psalm 128 pictures the, the family. You have many children. It's this dream we have of uh, children who walk with the Lord and we can be close to our grandchildren someday. Uh, and just as our children are being raised in the home, we, we're putting so much hope in them. And again, as we see, we're having problems and all people do going back to the very first family with Adam and Eve. And we want help. And I think we yearn for something that will virtually guarantee success. And this is the way, you know, there are people who have written books and are giving seminars who basically say, we've never seen anyone who followed our method whose kids didn't turn out great. We never, we did this and we never had a problem with our kids. And you hear that and it's very attractive saying, man, I'm having trouble. And these guys say they know what to do. And They've got this picture on the front of their book of all their kids in their little bow ties and long dresses. And, you know, it all looks so perfect. And so, of course, I want that. 
so I, I understand why people want it. They, they just have to, like the Bereans, have to be careful to examine what is said from the Bible, which I guess I'll mention one more thing along those lines. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, I mean, they, they're these people who are teaching these things are Christians or professing Christians, and they often quote Bible verses. Now, sometimes if you read the Bible verses in their context, they don't actually mean what these people make them say. But, you know, it sounds like, well, these are Christian leaders and they're using the Bible, so I can trust them. But again, I think when we look more carefully like good Bereans, we see there are problems. In the book, you explain that in their quest to dial in on child training formulas, parents might unwittingly buy into approaches that are either unbiblical or extra biblical. So can you offer us some examples of what you mean by that statement? Yeah, I'll give a couple of the examples of things I've actually read or seen. Okay. Uh, when I was a young Christian and I went to hear Bill Gothard, and I remember the Institute of Basic Youth Conflicts, and I was just a mid-teenager, but I remember he said, you ought to just spank a child and keep spanking the child until the child is sweet. And there was an implicit promise that if you just keep spanking an angry child or in a rebellious child, sooner or later they'll sweeten up. Well, there's no promise in the Bible that an incorrigible child will be sweetened up through being continuously spanked. There's wisdom in disciplining a child and there's different situations require different application. But you'd be really disappointed. You might have a 14-year-old who is incorrigible or a 10-year-old. And so, but it sounded like a nice idea. And he's, you know, he spoke like, oh, this is a certainty. Another example, actually, I remember listening to an audio of a leader in the family integrated movement speaking where he took in Matthew chapter one, where the angel appears to Joseph and the guy started talking about how Joseph and Mary were betrothed. And he started talking about betrothal, that we as parents should not want our children to date. We should not even want them to court. We should arrange their marriages through betrothal because that's what they did in Bible times. And that's not what Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25 is talking about. It's describing, you know, it's, it's mentioning a custom of the time. It doesn't even explain exactly how that custom worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's background for the passage. But he's teaching seminars saying courtship is liberal and betrothal is biblical. And then just like a silly one where somebody will say, uh, well, you want to potty train your toddler, use M&Ms and you know, reward the child with M&Ms and that'll potty train the child. Not every child is wired that way. I think rewards for potty training can sometimes work and there's biblical basis for sometimes using rewards. Some kids, that kid may be on the autism spectrum and not connect the M&M or he may like, may like gummy bears instead. Mm-hmm. I guess one more example, which is probably one of the more troubling ones is that back in the, back in the 80s into the 90s, the Ezos uh, became very popular. They were teaching baby wise and growing kids God's way. And they were very formulaic. And part of it was you can get a child to sleep through the night by, you know, this is the way to do it at a certain number of months. And you follow this methodology. And, you know, it's common sense that a baby might be able to learn to sleep through the night if you let him cry it out now and then. But it was very particular. And then they went on and they went, you know, here's the method for raising your kids. And here's the method, you know, that they get to be children and not babies. And then even they did some stuff on teenagers. And there was some in there that was pretty good. 
But in, in some cases, like this is a way to do it. Like, I can't say from the Bible the demand feeding is sinful. If mom wants to get up throughout the night and feed the baby, uh, the Bible doesn't say she's not allowed to do that. Also, the Bible doesn't promise that it four months or two months or whatever the Ezos thought, I can't remember, that if you just follow this method, your baby will sleep through the night and you'll start getting six to eight hours of sleep instead of two. Uh, it, sometimes that happens. So sometimes it's like, this is the way to do it. And I think if you said this is a way to do it, and it worked for some people, but the Bible doesn't say you have to do it that way. And it may not work for you because every family is different. You mentioned about parents being good Bereans. And in case there's someone listening to this podcast who isn't familiar with what that phrase means, could you explain what that means, especially as it relates to this discussion that we're having? Great question. Yeah. So in Acts 17, when the Apostle Paul went to the city of Berea, it said that the people there were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So in kind of Christianese, which I was using, the term being a good Berean means just because somebody quotes a Bible verse and then tells you something doesn't mean that what he says really came out of the Bible verse. Mm -hmm. And so you need to open your Bible for yourself and to see does the Bible really teach what he is saying? And there are some people who quote Bible verses who may twist them or misinterpret them, and therefore that could lead to problems if you follow their teaching. And I'm going to give you an example of one of the hardest ones, where the proverb says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. You have to understand, like being a good Berean, understand the nature of what a proverb is. Proverbs are not absolute and unconditional promises. They're statements of wisdom. Uh, for example, the proverb says, the hand of the diligent makes rich, and the one who is lazy comes to poverty. And those are absolutely true statements of wisdom, but they are not absolute and unconditional promises. Uh, sluggards win the lottery, which would be an exception, and sometimes diligent people get wiped out when there's a pandemic and their business can't stay open any longer. And uh, and so God blesses faithful parenting, but it's not an absolute and unconditional promise if you just do it right, your kids will turn out great. Uh, and of course, another side would be none of us are going to do it perfectly anyway. And so we can't make a claim on God. But I think just we have to be very careful as we interpret the scriptures and people can be confused uh, if they're not very careful. Well, you just said that God blesses faithful parenting. And I think that there may be a tendency here with that statement to maybe be a little extra biblical with it. And you actually introduce a term in this book that I hadn't heard before until I listened to you teach on this topic called parental determinism. And so I wondered, would you unpack that term and share how it conflicts with the scriptures? Sure. Uh, and I almost feel like saying, you got to read the book because this is going to be a long <laughs> answer. Um, I want to back up when I make the statement that God blesses faithful parenting, that is a generality, but you have even examples in the Bible, which goes along with the question about parental determinism, where I think you have faithful parents who had trials. Um, Jesus said in Luke 12 that in the same family, there'll be three against two and two against three and father against son and mother against daughter. And so sometimes if we're faithful to the gospel, if our children do not embrace the gospel, it's going to create conflict between us and our children. And there's nothing we can do as parents to 
regenerate our children's heart to make them believe. There are many other examples. I mean, Adam and Eve, they had Cain, then they had Abel. And I think they were faithful parents. I think there's evidence of that in terms of, I think they were converted. I think they were hoping in God. And yet, you know, with the same parenting, uh, Cain became a murderer and an exile, and, and Abel was faithfully worshiping God and became a martyr. And so the term parental determinism would be, again, if you just follow the formula, if you just do it right, you will have success by whatever you define success to be. And I have in uh, the little Parenting is More Than a Formula book quotes from certain people who say, that, you know, parenting is like baking a cake. If you follow the recipe, you'll get a tasty cake worth bragging about. I say, no, parenting isn't like baking a cake because the cake doesn't have a will of its own. The, the cake is made out of ingredients. And if you choose high quality flour and sugar and eggs, whatever you put into a cake, you follow the recipe. Yeah, that will, you have control over a cake. A child has a will that you cannot control. You are an influence over the child, but you are not able to determine that. Uh, Adam and Eve could not force Cain to believe uh, in Ezekiel 18, you have a sequence of parents. We have a righteous father who has a wicked son, who has a righteous son. And part of the point is that having a righteous father doesn't guarantee you're going to have a righteous son. It says in Ezekiel 18 that the, the son of the righteous man sees his father's way and chooses not to do the same. Mm. And so as a parent, you know, we, we, we can strive to be faithful to do what the Bible says. We can plead with God to bless our labors but we can't control the wills of our children. And the reality is that there is another voice that our children are going to hear, whether we like it or not. In the book of Proverbs, you have the voice of wisdom crying in the street. And in Proverbs chapter 9, in the beginning of the chapter, wisdom offers a banquet to the naive person. And the naive young man or woman is the kind of the target audience of Proverbs, is the person who's undecided between God's ways and, and the world's ways. And part of what Proverbs is getting at is the young person is going to hear the other voice. And you have the figure of Madame Folly, symbolically. The adulteress is a literal temptation. At the end of chapter 9, you have another banquet. Madame Folly, at the end of the chapter, is offering a banquet, calling upon passers-by to come. And so our children are going to hear both voices, and we want to plead with them to listen to the voice of wisdom but they're going to be tempted by the voice of folly, and we can't make that decision for them as they become adults. Well, thank you for taking time to explain that. I think it's such an important point that parents understand what that term means, because they may be listening to how you're describing it, and now they're recognizing, well, maybe I've gotten into that type of thinking, and maybe that explains some of the fractures that are going on in, in my relationships under my roof. In your own experience as a counselor and a pastor, what do you think are some of the ramifications or bad fruits of embracing that parental determinism mindset? Can it negatively impact the relationships that we have with our children or even our personal walks with Christ? I think there are many uh, negative ramifications of believing in parental determinism. One would be then if your children start to go bad, Again, in our story, which we've shared other, you know, many people, we, we love, we have adult children in our their 30s, we love them, but none of them is, in our view, walking with the Lord. And so you could say, well, we must have done it wrong. And there could be overwhelming guilt, which I think could be a false guilt in the sense that our children have made choices to go against the way we tried to train them. And so 
for the parents who aren't, you know, enjoying great success of having believers as children, and they're all being pastors and pastors' wives and missionaries and missionaries' wives, and you know, uber successful in a Christian sense, uh, that can be depressing, a lot of false guilt, uh, shame. But then even for those who seem to be succeeding, there can be a temptation to pride, like, look what I did. Hmm. I'm a success because my child is walking with the Lord, and I'm better than you. And now the sad thing would be, in some cases, thinking of cases I've known where you've had young people who seem to be walking with the Lord through their teens, even into their 20s, and it all looks like these parents have it all together, and look, they're the great success story. And then this child goes wayward in his 30s or 40s. It happens. It, you know, we don't have control over these things. And so I, I think the pride when there's success, and then another would be anger. I tell a story in the book, and when we talk about this, like of a mom who quit her job just to raise her kids, and she just did everything for them. And she thought she kind of had a deal with God that if she did it all right and had family devotions and prayed with the kids and homeschooled them and gave them every benefit in life that, uh, you know, she'd get her goal achieved of wonderful daughters who were successful and pure. Well, she comes in with her husband and her 19-year-old daughter who's pregnant out of wedlock. And she's tempted to be sinfully angry at the daughter for her dream being shattered and even angry with God. How could you do this to me? I thought we had a deal. Hmm. Well, God never made that promise. And so I think it can really affect your walk with the Lord is our security, which would be your question of, you know, affecting our walk with Christ. My security is not in my children. My security has to be in God. Like, Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 8, it says, if you trust in men, uh, you'll be like the bush in the desert. If you trust in God, you'll be like the tree planted by river of water, whose leaves remain green even in the year of drought. And some of us are going to experience some drought with our kids. And if our hope is in our kids, we're going to be like the bush in the desert. And we need to learn that our, our hope is in God and not in our children. I appreciated the statement in the book that you made when you wrote, quote, we are not parenting for success. Rather, we strive to be faithful in pointing our children to Christ. So if gospel parenting is not merely a formula, then what does it look like practically? You know, I appreciate that you took that quote. And there's actually a book written by some friends of mine called The Faithful Parent, which instead of being the successful parent, I think that's a good title, is that I want, so far as I'm able as a parent and now as a grandparent, to follow what the Bible says as I train my children. And I think everything the Bible says about parenting is really summed up in Ephesians 6, 4. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so in that one verse, I think you could take everything Proverbs and other parts of the Bible say about parenting, it would all fit into one of the three things in Ephesians 6, 4. We are responsible to discipline them. And discipline means we establish standards in the home and we bring consequences they don't meet the standards. And, you know, the younger they are, the more discipline is going on. And then we are to instruct them, not merely control their behavior, but we are to, like Deuteronomy 6 talks about, to teach your sons when they walk by the way and, you know, bind them on your house and everything, is we're to teach them the Word of God and to do so faithfully. So we're to control their behavior through discipline, and you know, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline removes it far from him. The Bible doesn't tell you what kind of rod to buy or when you stop spanking and start bringing other consequences. It says you establish standards, you bring consequences. You don't leave it at behavior, but you open the scriptures. And I would say as you bring that instruction, it's an instruction 
which is pointing to redemption and not mere morality, which I'm going to expand on in a moment. So you're teaching them the Word of God, not just managing their behavior. And then don't provoke them to anger is our own sin by showing favoritism, by modeling parental anger. Uh, Lou Priola's book, The Heart of Anger, he lists 25 ways we provoke our kids to anger. Um, and so, but again, what the Bible says about parenting is really simple. And how each family does discipline or does instruction is going to vary from family to family and even to some extent in different cultures. And I think sometimes the parental, there could be parental legalism saying all people must have family devotions at 7 p.m. and, you know, read a proverb and do this and do that. Or, you know, those are nice things to do. Other families may do it in the morning. Other families may do it, you know, in some different pattern. The point is, are you faithful in those three things generally? And if I could go on, you mentioned about gospel parenting, and I certainly embrace that as well in the sense that the gospel really is involved in all three of those elements in Ephesians 6, 4. And this is something I got from Ted Tripp in Shepherding a Child's Heart when he talked about discipline is an opportunity to point our kids to Christ and that Galatians tells us that in chapter 4 that the law is our tutor to lead us to Christ so we'd be justified by faith, or chapter 3. But the law is a tutor and, and so when we go to the child and when the child sins and the child will sin, rather than saying, I want you to behave more morally, you need to try harder, you can do it. Uh, just as a reminder, the fact you keep sinning is a reminder that we are sinners and, and we need something that we can't do for ourselves. You, know, you, you, you said you'd never lie again, but you lied again. And I get it. When I was a child, I struggled and I still struggle. Your sin shows your need of the gospel. It shows why Jesus came, that we might uh, buy, you know, the, we, we need forgiveness for our many sins. And that's why he died on the cross. And and then we need a new light and a new heart, new life and a new heart. And Jesus gives us that new life and makes us new people. So you your sin needs forgiveness. Your heart needs changing. Your, your failure to obey the rules shows that. And the gospel is the only hope for you. And then with instruction that not just to tell Bible stories, dare to be a Daniel, kill the Goliaths in your life, or you can win the tough battles or something, but showing like Jesus did in Luke 24, how the whole scripture is centered in the gospel. The Bible isn't merely a book about morality. It's a, it's a book about redemption. And then when we're redeemed, we want to act morally. And then even not provoking them to anger, that our own sin, to be quick to confess our sin and say, Daddy needs Jesus as much as you need Jesus because Daddy gets impatient. So we can be faithful in carrying out these basic elements in a way that is permeated with the gospel. While I was reading this book, I thought about couples in a situation who may be coming from different backgrounds, different upbringings, and, you know, as marriage so often does, it exposes areas where we disagree and differences of opinions. And so I wondered, how would you counsel a couple who's not really sure which way they want to go with this? That's a great question. Uh, and we do run into it a lot. You know, when, when God said in Genesis 2.18 that he was going to make a helper suitable for the man, and it wasn't he's was going to make somebody else just like the man. He was going to make somebody different who would complete the man. And I think in the area of parenting, you typically have a good cop and a bad cop. You typically have one parent who is all about love and not very good at rules and one who's really good at rules and needs to work on the love side. And those parents can really clash. 
especially if they start having trouble with the kids. Well, you know, the problem is that you were too permissive. No, the problem was you weren't affectionate enough and you were too strict. And so taking a step back, I think in terms of the character of each individual parent, we need to be humble and realize that we've all fallen short of perfect parenting. We all struggle with our own sin as parents, our own idols as parents. And so we are each in desperate need of God's grace and that we need help is that by myself, I would be imbalanced. And I'm thankful. I mean, even now I've got a 38-year-old, a 35-year-old, and a 32-year-old, and I still need the balance that Caroline brings me to keep moving towards my sons and to have compassion on them. And, and so I think that to see the differences as the way God has put you together with different strengths and weaknesses and to be very humble. Uh, the Proverbs talks about there's greater hope for a fool than the person who trusts in himself. And so we should be very humble and parenting ought to humble you if you're paying attention <laughs> and to realize you have, a, you know, you're somebody who can learn a lot from your spouse. And then I guess along with this, where the conflicts take place, what I see is often there are many problems in the marriage and parenting is just one of the many problems. This is a couple that has, has unresolved conflict between the two of them, not just in this area, but other areas. I use the analogy of the sluggard's field in Proverbs 24. They have a, they have a field full of unpulled weeds and thorn bushes in their marriage and unresolved conflict. And when their marriage is not close like it should be, they're not only, they, they lack the flowers, they've got the weeds. They're not going to be able to parent very well unless their marriage itself is strong. And usually the question is not who's right and who's wrong about how strict to be, whether Jane can have an iPhone or not. My view would be usually there's a relationship problem between the parents where they need to confess their sin to God and then to each other to pull the weeds of bitterness, to use biblical peacemaking. And there's a series on the IBCD website of four parts on how to bring resolution to conflict. And then to plant the flowers or the strawberries or whatever you like to grow in your garden in their own marriage. And if in their marriage, they're resolving their conflicts in a biblical way, they're humble and quick to admit their sin. They consider the other person ahead of themselves. They really enjoy and love each other. Then these differences can be worked out. And if, and if the marriage relationship itself isn't on a good foundation, then no amount of negotiation is going to solve the differences of opinion they have about how to raise their kids. And in the long run, it's really bad for the kids. The kids need the parents to be in love and united more than virtually anything else. That's more important than the resolution of any particular question about restrictions or discipline with kids. If you haven't heard Jim's previous appearance on the Hope and Help podcast, and this really touches on your experience in your marriage, I want to encourage you to scroll back to our previous episode where I interviewed Jim. It was Hope and Help for Hurting Marriages, and he unpacks what he was just describing in, in a lot of detail, and he even has a wonderful resource, a book on the topic of marriage, remarriage, and divorce. I will put all of the links to those pieces of content in the show notes. So if you are interested, scroll down in the show notes, click the link, and it will take you to the page where you can access that other interview and Jim's books as well. Well, we've got time, Jim, for a couple of more questions. So I want to ask you, if someone listening to this conversation now recognizes they have fallen into unbiblical or extra biblical thinking in this area, what are some first steps they can take toward making a spirit-empowered change? 
Well, it kind of relates to the previous question, and that would be ideally, if assuming it's a married couple and not a single parent, that it would begin by talking about these things together. And I'm thankful that part of gospel parenting is that my children are going to be saved by God's grace, not by my outstanding parenting skills. And so it can be appropriate to confess to one another where I see that I've failed to be gospel focused. I've been impatient or, you know, I, I realize now that we've really put a lot of faith in this methodology. It's not working anyway. And so I think to confess to God, to confess to each other, to be humble with each other, and to try to reevaluate our approach based upon Scripture. It may involve coming to our kids and seeking their forgiveness. It, it depends on the particulars, even for a single parent. You know, just realizing that something I, I've said in other contexts is if our children were given to us as blank slates, we would all have ruined them. Hmm. And of course, they're not given to us as blank slates. They're given to us as sinners. And so we are dependent upon God's grace for the salvation and the success of our children, not upon our great human efforts. We want to be faithful. We will always fall short. And no matter how well you do, you're going to need the grace of God to save your kids. And no matter how poorly you do, the grace of God can save your kids. If you've learned things and you realize, you know, I've been making lots of rules that have no basis in the Bible, or I've bought into this person who seems to be unhelpfully unbiblical. And there's some people who just kind of get woke up and realize, wow, I was almost like in a cult with this group that were telling me exactly how to do things. Our home became a very cold, legalistic place. I've been very frustrated. Uh, you know, go back to the simplicity of what the Bible says, back to the being a good Berean, which you had me explain. You know, my little booklet is a good start as an overview. I, I do love shepherding a child's heart because I think it is very careful and biblical and gospel-centered, you know, by Ted Tripp, in terms of thinking through how we incorporate discipline and gospel instruction into our parenting and deal with our temptations to provoke our kids to anger. But it's really to put your hope in God and not in your kids and not even in yourself, but to put your hope that God will be merciful and faithful and gracious to you as you seek him. Jim, we've come to the end of our show, so I'd like to invite you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening to this episode who is feeling worn down by the parenting methods they've tried. They're wearied from worldly advice and exhausted by extra biblical tips. What would you say to this listener to encourage them to trust God with their children while resolving to parent by grace and not formula? The most important lesson I've learned and the challenges that we've faced as parents is that our hope is not in ourselves, but in the grace of God. And in my own life, uh, I've been married to Caroline for 40 years, and the Bible says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, as you know, which is a, he gave himself up for us, a sacrificial love. And I've not learned that much about sacrificial love in marriage because I've really had it easy for over 40 years now. But I've learned about sacrificial love by being a parent. And it's maybe easy to love the child who is compliant, uh, the child who is fulfilling your dreams. And for me, the challenge has been to love children who sometimes have broken our hearts. And, you know, in an earthly sense, they have some success. But of course, we want nothing more for them that they would follow the Lord. And then they're have been real heartbreaks in our relationship. But just as God's love for us never ceases, 
and even we're prodigals and he always welcomes us back even though we've done wrong that parenting sometimes gives us the difficult privilege and opportunity of of loving our children the way that God has loved us is to keep loving that doesn't mean enabling sin but to keep caring to keep doing good to keep praying to keep moving towards them, even though there are not immediate results. And for many of us, you know, God was so patient with us before we finally believed. And even now he's patient with us as we're not following as well. And so I think we have the opportunity to reflect the love, even the fatherhood of God as we care for children who right now break our hearts are a disappointment and that he can give us the strength as we abide in him. We can't do anything apart from him, but as Jesus says in John 15, as we abide in him, we can bear much fruit. Well, thank you so much, Jim, for sharing those encouragements. I just want to remind the listener that if you are interested in getting connected with Jim, he has just so many resources available on the IBCD website. There's also a jimneuheiser.com, which is almost a secret, but oh. <laughs> a lot of my resources are on there as well. So if you are interested in getting connected with Jim's resources and his book, please click the link in the show notes. It will take you to the IBCD website where you can access all of Jim's books and resources and his website as well. Well, Jim, thanks again so much for joining us today to talk about your book, Parenting is More Than a Formula. Thank you very much, Christine. It's always a privilege and a joy to be with you. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help there you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.